Welcome to Miller Kane, A True and Exact History, a serialized novel by Samuel Ligon, published for the first time in The Inlander and broadcast by Spokane Public Radio. Miller Kane is made possible by Sprint and The Inlander. This is Chapter 2 of the Miller Kane podcast, which collects four weekly installments in one episode. A new chapter will be released as a podcast each Thursday until the novel reaches its conclusion. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest chapter as soon as it's available. Previously on Miller Kane, Miller has returned to Washington State to keep watch over eight-year-old Carlene, whose mother, Lizzie, is stuck in jail after shooting her estranged husband, Connor Callahan. Long out of the picture, Connor recently learned that Carlene will inherit the Callahan family fortune. Meanwhile, Miller Kane isn't exactly your typical father figure. A fraudulent historian, he's lately been making his living conning the survivors of mass shootings. Now, with Carlene, he's returned to the road in an old motorhome. Here's author Samuel Ligon. Chapter 2, Part 1. Miller headed west toward Washaway Beach, the wrong way if he was trying to get to Port Townsend, but he hadn't been out there since he was a kid and wanted to see how much more of it had washed away. He told Carlene about it as they drove, how it had been a beach town in the 19th century, North Cove, with a cannery and a lighthouse and hotels, and how it had all fallen piece by piece into the ocean over the years. Most of the old town site was a mile out to sea by now, and more houses and trailers fell annually as the ocean swallowed the land and everything on it in this one spot, taking a bigger and bigger bite out of the peninsula every year. The road had to be moved. The pioneer graveyard had to be moved. Like Laura Ingalls Wilder, Carlene said. Exactly like that, Miller said. But they didn't live by the ocean, Carlene said. They might have, Miller said. You don't know. He'd read her the first two Little House books before heading back out on the massacre circuit in January. The part I'm talking about isn't in the books, Miller said. It's too sad. Carlene watched him, waiting. Mary got washed away, for one thing, Miller said, which wasn't so bad since no one liked Mary. But then Carrie got washed away. And then that awful dog, what was his name? Jack. Right, Miller said. But he wasn't awful, Carlene said. I guess only Pa and Laura were left at the beach house, Miller said, after they ate Ma. Really, they ate corn cobs, Carlene said, and that was the long winter. And now it was the long summer. Miller had driven to the Olympic Peninsula from the Rosedale Massacre in under two days, 1,800 miles. It was good to be back in the Northwest, but the smoke was disorienting. Even in Aberdeen, you could smell it blowing in from the small fires in Olympic National Park and the big ones up in B.C. You know what I want to do, Carlene said. What, Miller said. Camp in this camper, Carlene said. And Miller said, I thought you just went camping. Not in a camper, Carlene said. We'll camp in the camper, Miller said. But not tonight. I couldn't get us a spot. Carlene had the craft tray pulled out of the dashboard and over her lap in the passenger seat. Her supplies spread before her. Scissors, needles, batting, beads. Her basket of fabric on the floor beside her. We'll stay at a hotel in Port Townsend a few nights, Miller said. With a pool, Carlene said. Mm, With saltwater soaking tubs down the street, Miller said. 
He had no idea if the soaking place was still there. He figured they'd drive up the peninsula, hike if Carlene wanted to, then settle into their room in Port Townsend, maybe head out to the fort for fireworks and whatever else was going on for the fourth. Carlene said, can I use the camper's bathroom while we're driving? And Miller said, you can, but you might get thrown off the toilet and killed. Oh, Carlene said. Do you have to go now, Miller said? We can stop. No, Carlene said. You can take a shower while we're driving, too, Miller said. It's illegal and dangerous, and you might get killed, but it's possible. Carlene was making a mermaid doll. She'd been making dolls since she was three years old. Must have made a hundred by now. Miller had a dozen or so in the motorhome, including several series of dolls, Judy, Cutie, and Trudy Moody, for example, a group of somewhat misshapen sisters Carlene had sewn early in her career, their faces lopsided, their stitched lips smeared with purple marker, their yarn hair patchy over mitten-shaped skulls. Another series featured the Ming family, mother, father, daughter, all sewn together by their heads. Why is it so dangerous, Carlene said, squinting as she stitched together two pink fabric strips shaping the mermaid's tail. The dolls she made were so good now she could sell them in the shops where her mother sold clothes and jewelry, but most of them she gave away or kept for herself. She didn't know she was an heiress yet, that she'd never have to make or sell anything again if she didn't want to. Lizzie had been right about that. No kid should know such a thing. Because you'd probably be decapitated, Miller said. Carlene looked up from her stitching. Really, she said. You know what that means, Miller said. My head chopped off, Carlene said. And rolling around the shower, Miller said. That's what a guillotine does, Carlene said. Or a broadsword, Miller said, like Pa had. Pa didn't have a broadsword, Carlene said. He had a gun. And brass knuckles, Miller said. And a blackjack. Not really, Carlene said. And Miller said, no, not really. They felt a silence in the road sounds while Carlene stitched her doll's torso. They had a cat, though, she said, on the prairie and in the big woods. Waffles was his name. I thought that was your cat's name. Carlene put her needle down and started stuffing her doll with batting. Can we get him, she said. Aunt Kara told me we might see Mom. We're going to talk to her on the phone, Miller said. I know that much. But we're not going to see her, Carlene said. We don't know, Miller said. When he picked up Carlene a few hours ago, Kara had told him Carlene thought Lizzie was in jail for tax evasion. The kid was eight years old, for Christ's sake. What does she know about tax evasion, Miller said, and Kara said she knows Lizzie gets paid under the table for her jewelry and that it's a secret she could get in trouble for. Miller poked his head into the hallway to see if Carlene was looming. What about the idiot, he said. What about him, Kara said. Does she know Lizzie shot him? She doesn't even know he's back, Kara said. Carlene pounded into the kitchen. Know who's back, she said. My friend Flicka, Kara said. And then they were on the road. You don't know what he's capable of, Lizzie told Miller once Connor had reappeared. But based on Lizzie's stories, what Connor seemed most capable of was getting high, going to the Bahamas, and writing bad poetry. On the other hand, Miller had seen enough to know that most everyone was capable of nearly any horrible thing you could imagine. Beside him in the motorhome, Carlene sewed her mermaid's head shut. Is it because kids can't visit jail, she said? And Miller said, I'm not sure how jail rules work. But we don't always follow rules, Carlene said. But sometimes we do, Miller said. And Carlene said, now I really have to pee. 
They were on the bridge crossing from Bay City to Laidlow. I'll pull over up here, Miller said, and then we can go to Grayland, maybe. Drive out on the beach and eat lunch and watch people clamming and go swimming if we feel like it. I'm not sure this bus can go on the beach, Carlene said. Why not, Miller said. It might get stuck, Carlene said. It won't get stuck, Miller said, and it's not a bus. It's a motorhome. And it wasn't that big. 23 feet with a queen bed and back you could close off with an accordion door, plus a shower and bathroom and a two-burner stove, a fridge, a small oven, and a table with a bench wrapped around three sides and another bed for Carlene up above the front seats. Miller had gotten it three months ago from a guy at the Salt Flats Massacre, Parker Dundee, who said he didn't want it anymore. Miller wasn't sure he wanted it either. He'd got rid of almost everything and wasn't sure he wanted to start filling another place with stuff. But it was nice to cook on the road, to have his own bed, to have space apart from the survivors. Mom says it's a gas pig, Carlene said. Not when it's sitting, Miller said. Sometimes when I'm parked somewhere for a week or so, it'll get over 100,000 miles per gallon. That is pretty good, Carlene said. It really is, Miller said. He pulled into the dirt lot at Brady's Oysters with its mountain of shells facing South Bay. I've never peed in a camper before, Carlene said, after he showed her how to flush the toilet. You're going to love it, Miller said, and Carlene said, I know I will. Chapter 2, Part 2. Everything Miller remembered of Washaway Beach was gone. State Route 105 had already been rerouted once, maybe 10 years ago, and was about to fall into the ocean again. Only one lane was open. The Pioneer Graveyard was as he remembered it from childhood when his family had visited on a trip from Spokane, only now it was much closer to the ocean, though the sign marking it was the same. North Cove Pioneer Cemetery, established 1892, eroded 1977. There were almost no buildings left. A few squatters trailers, one house on a point jutting into the sea surrounded by blasted concrete and rebar, holding on, all of it ramshackle. The resort town long, long gone, and the remaining trailers derelict and marked with keep out and no trespassing signs. Good places to cook meth, it seemed. Each gravestone in the Pioneer Graveyard had a small rock laid atop it, hand-decorated with hearts or stars and the word love written in 1970s bubble letters, but the paint fresh and vibrant. I bet the grandchildren painted these, Carlene said, or schoolchildren. Across the road, the surf pounded, chewing at the point. Do you think they'll have to move it again, Carlene said, and Miller said, I do. And Carlene said, they should move it farther from the ocean next time. That day at Washaway, when Miller was 10, his father had told the story of his grandfather losing his car at Moclips in 1920. Miller's great-grandfather parked on the beach and falling asleep in his A-model Ford. That's what he always called it, Miller's dad said, an A-model Ford the tide washing up and waking Miller's great-grandfather when the water started seeping in through the doors, destroying the car. 
That story always led to talk about the line of failures Miller's great-grandfather had come from and transcended, the family failing its way across the continent from Virginia in the late 18th and early 19th centuries to end up in Walla Walla in 1860, 13 years after the Whitman massacre, failing in Walla Walla on some of the richest farmland in the world, something that was almost impossible to achieve. Great-grandfather Kane made something of himself in spite of his parents' and grandparents' failures, proof that Miller himself and his brother and sister were also exceptional. Great-grandfather putting himself and his siblings through Linfield College in Oregon, then teaching, then becoming a principal in Gresham, before finally becoming superintendent of the Multnomah County Farm, a poor farm outside Portland that housed indigents and alcoholics and the mentally ill. Miller's father had visited the farm many times as a kid in the early 60s, afraid of the smells of the old poor people, inmates they were called, his grandfather playing ping pong with them in the basement recreation room and helping old men roll cigarettes from pouches of Bull Durham. He did what he could for those people, Miller's dad said, made their lives better, made the farm more productive and a safer place to live. The poor farm was an adorable inn now, with a brewery and winery and pottery shack and beautiful art along its institutional hallways. You could get a room there with a sink in it and a bathroom down the hall for one fifty a night. Miller had stayed there with his brother and sister and parents before his dad died and his mom started slipping. There was a picture of his great-grandfather on one of the walls, though no one there would have known who that man was, and Miller himself wouldn't have known either if his father hadn't shown him. At Wasaway Beach that day in 1986, there were still neighborhoods, still plenty of houses, but his father said, this is all going to be swallowed, which terrified Miller. If these houses were going to be swallowed, why wouldn't the ocean keep swallowing until it reached their house in Spokane? They sat on a blanket in the Pioneer Cemetery eating lunch. If it wasn't for your great-grandpa, Miller's dad said, the family might have failed its way right to this spot, the end of the country, the end of the continent, all of us swallowed up right here by the ocean. Really? Miller said. Jack, Miller's mom said. That's not true, Miller's sister Dina said. You're right, Miller's dad said. It's not true. But now, everything his father had said about the houses washing away was true. And he himself was gone. And so was Miller's brother and Miller's nephew. And Miller's mother, with no memory left, was as good as gone. A horrible thing to think. How had he let himself become so maudlin on the 4th of July when he had a job to do and the smoke was thinning? Miller told Carlene that he'd been here when he was her age and was now surprised by how much of it had washed away, even though his dad had told him it would someday. Well, Carlene said, it'll probably wash back in someday. Miller imagined the town reassembling itself piece by piece, the people reassembling themselves. It's not that interesting, really, Carlene said, to see what isn't here. You're right, Miller said, and Carlene said, I wonder if it's because of cars on the beach that it washed away. No, Miller said, it isn't. Mom says cars shouldn't be allowed on the beach, Carlene said, but it's fun to drive on the beach, Miller said, and that's how they do it here. Carlene held up her mermaid. Let's send her back to sea, she said. Really? Miller said. I can make another one, Carlene said. They found a high bluff over the water and hurled Carlene's mermaid into the ocean. 
She might make it to Asia, Carlene said, or she might get torn apart by sharks. Chapter 2, Part 3. They drove to Port Townsend in 4th of July traffic and checked into their hotel, a smelly, crumbling Victorian a block from Sirens, the only real bar in town. French doors in their room opened to a deck where you could watch ferries come and go and see Mount Baker and a line of cascades all the way down to Rainier, if there wasn't any smoke, which there was, not that you could see it. You only knew it was there because you couldn't see the mountains. The deck was a perfect place to have a beer and a cigarette if you still smoked, which Miller did not, though he reserved the right to take them up again if he lived long enough. They got a pizza at Waterfront and took it to Fort Worden. Everyone in town was there, the parade grounds across from the old officers' houses jammed with cars and a couple of hot air balloons going up and down. They ate their pizza on the commons, far from the stage, but they could still hear the awful folk music. Carlene watched the kids running around them. Go on, Miller said. I'll stay here. He kept an eye on her as she ran with a group of girls toward the schoolhouse. No way could Connor know where they were, though Miller kept mistaking people for the idiot. Up the road, past the hostel, was Artillery Hill, ringed by old batteries and bunkers facing the Strait of Juan de Fuca to defend Seattle and the Puget Sound from a naval attack that never came. Now you could crawl around the bunker system, and if you were in high school, have sex and smoke weed and ignore your future, all with a stunning view. When he was a kid, Miller's dad told him he could ride one of the deer that were everywhere here if he could catch one. But when it seemed like he might, that's how tame they were, his mom told him his dad was just being cute. Miller followed Carlene and her friends toward Alexander's castle. The girls ran around a big madrona tree, then up the lawn, stopping in front of the cottages. A man called to one of them, and Carlene looked around until she spotted Miller, then waved to the girls and ran toward him. There's a pie-eating contest, she said, and face-painting. Let's do it all, Miller said. As they walked back to the commons, he couldn't shake the feeling that they were being watched, followed. There were a couple thousand people here. Of course eyes would land on them. But he kept looking back for Connor, for Hefner, for a shooter, which is why he had to stop doing what he'd been doing these last three years, making him imagine shooters everywhere he went. While Carlene got her face painted, a man on stage started a Skip James song, I'm So Glad. The guitar part was hard and fast, and the dude was hitting it note for note as he sang, the song picking up speed through its repetitive verses. I'm so glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. The guy almost too good, too much like Skip James. I don't know what to do, don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. This was the great version from 1931, almost exactly, except clean. None of the noise from that brilliant old recording. Carlene was getting a unicorn painted on her cheek. It was after 8 o'clock, but this far north, the light would linger past 10. Miller wanted to get close to the stage to see how this guy was doing what he was doing. 
How much longer is this going to be? He asked the teenager, painting Carlene's face. I want another unicorn, Carlene said, if we're allowed to have two. Sure, the teenager said. Maybe ten minutes? I want to watch this musician a minute, Miller said to Carlene. Don't move from here, okay? He worked his way toward the stage. He'd never heard anyone play like this, except Skip James. But it didn't feel like imitation. The guy was putting everything he had into it, and he was still picking up speed, still nailing the high, fast riffs. Miller got closer, wove through the crowd. I'm tired of weeping, the dude sang. Tired of moaning, tired of groaning for you. And still he sped up. From a distance, the guy even looked like James. Up close, he looked exactly like James, slim and strong featured, a broad forehead over piercing green, almost translucent eyes. No one else had those eyes. But Skip James had been dead 50 years. Miller looked back, couldn't see the face painting booth. Maybe Skip James had a son and this was him or a grandson. He wanted to stay and watch, but he couldn't see Carlene. He made his way through the crowd, not quite running, and when he could see the booth, another kid was in the seat. No sign of Carlene. He started running. What a fool he was to leave her there when his only job was to keep her safe. She was nowhere. And then she was ten feet away with the girl she'd met earlier. Jesus, he'd never let her out of his sight again. Skip James started another Skip James song, Hard Time Killing Floor Blues. Carlene watched him approach. The pie-eating contest is in ten minutes, she said. Okay, Miller said, but let's watch this guy play for another minute. We have to register, Carlene said. We might be too late. They stood in line in the pie tent. A contest was going on, people paying to throw pies at local politicians and other prominent community members. Carlene requested a fork when she registered for her event, and the woman told her she'd have to keep her hands behind her back during the pie-eating contest. Carlene said, I don't want to do it like that. But those are the rules, the woman said. Carlene shook her head. We can also just get a piece of pie, Miller said. Sure can, the woman said, pointing, right over there. I want to do the contest, Carlene said. Miller paid the woman, and Carlene got a bib with a number on it. Skip James went into Devil Got My Woman. Carlene was led to a long row of tables and given a seat. There were only a dozen or so competitors. I'd rather be the devil, Skip James sang. Announcements were made. Then the contest started, with all the competitors sticking their faces into the pies before them. Except for Carlene, who put her face down and nibbled at the crust, wrinkled her nose, and sat back up watching her peers smear their faces with filling. Go ahead, honey, an old lady said to her. Carlene ignored her. She smiled, though, and watched the other kids. A 12-year-old boy won. That crust wasn't any good, she said to Miller once it was over. Let's go buy a couple pieces in the tent, Miller said. They got slices of huckleberry, blackberry, gooseberry, then walked toward the water. Skip James was done and another nightmarish folk ensemble was playing. This crust is pretty good, Miller said, and Carlene said not as good as yours. Or yours, Miller said. They sat on the lawn to wait for the fireworks. Their first day together had been a good one. Then he saw Connor through the crowd in a blue polo shirt headed toward them. Jesus Christ, the man wouldn't do anything here, would he? Miller looked for a way out. He didn't want to scare Carlene, didn't even know if she'd want her father to be back and looking for her. Maybe she'd be happy to see him. Miller shifted around to block Connor's view of Carlene. His heart was going. Would the idiot have a gun? 
But when he looked back, the man was gone. Then he appeared again, heading away from them. But the blue of his shirt seemed more purple. Or was that a trick of the light? Maybe the man wasn't Connor at all. Maybe he was just some dude. And the blues player wasn't Skip James. He just looked and sounded exactly like Skip James. I love fireworks, Carlene sighed. Mom says they represent bombs and war, but I think they're beautiful exactly as themselves. I don't think they have to represent anything. You're right, Miller said. Things can be just what they are. But he kept his eye on the guy who maybe wasn't Connor, just in case. And on everyone else, too. Chapter 2, Part 4 Back at the hotel, there was no air conditioning and the room was hot. Miller sat on the deck with a glass of whiskey while Carlene reread the first little house book in bed. He had his laptop open on the picnic table but couldn't get anything started. When he went back in for another drink, Carlene was asleep, her forehead flushed with heat and the unicorn on her cheek smeared, some of the paint on her pillow as well. Miller walked his whiskey outside and sat with it, watching the water, and eventually he started to write. Hero Villain 2. Skip James. Long ago, in the 1960s, when it was still possible to go to space and eat nothing but meat and sugar and carbohydrates and tang and save people from horrible belief systems like communism and anarchism and fascism, and everyone was snorting gluten and lactose constantly, a certain group of people was searching for Skip James. Skip wasn't lost to himself necessarily, but he was lost to the people who needed to find something authentic and American and tortured and beautiful. And if you've heard Skip James, you knew that what they were looking for was the sound of his early records, the only ones that mattered, recorded in 1931, because before we saved the world from fascism, before we could destroy cities with one bomb and then the entire world with a few missiles, before we could blow it up or realize we were melting it down, Skip James was singing in Wisconsin, where he traveled from Mississippi to record 18 songs for Paramount Records. And even though we couldn't blow up the world yet, it was hard, hard times, with dust blowing and people eating babies and everyone so poor and desperate and worn out and hopeless that even Almanzo Wilder, whose wife Laura was writing her little house books then, trying to scrape up a buck or two during the Depression, even Almanzo said, My life has been mostly disappointments. Laura's father, Pa, would never say such a thing. But this wasn't Pa. This was Laura's husband, Farmer Boy. Though he wasn't a boy anymore, nor Laura a girl worshipping her father, poet, fiddle player, fond of cider and music and moving every few years. A gigantic failure when we stop to think about it, depending on how we think about it. Can a happy man be considered a failure? George, include a photo of Pa here, preferably with wife Caroline, or Ma, under or beside the photo of Skip James, and maybe one of Almanzo, preferably one where we can see how gimped up he is. Shall we consider Pa's poverty and constant moving a sign of failure, or does he represent a kind of American optimism? Not a man who couldn't make it where he was, 
though he couldn't seem to, but a man staying on the edge of the frontier, looking for more gold, better dirt. Pa himself, if not successful, then also not an inveterate gambler, except in his moving, or a child molester, no evidence of this at all. But maybe a drunk in Laura's portrait. Skip James also liked to drink now and then. Certainly more charming and playful and lovable than Ma, God knows, and happy. Pa would never say, as his son-in-law later would, my life has been mostly disappointments. But even if one could consider Pa a failure, Laura would become a legend, mining from her life the stories that would mythologize her and her family and America, her, him, them itself. Plenty of things didn't work out on the prairie or on the banks of Plum Creek. Still, might we say that Laura was a success because she was rich and her work was well-received, while Skip James was a failure because he was poor and almost nobody heard his work in his time? Might we also suggest that Laura was the inspiration for such songs as Cherry Ball Blues and Devil Got My Woman and Special Rider Blues, Skip singing and I'm so glad, I'm tired of weeping, tired of moaning, tired of groaning for you. I don't know what to do. Don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Laura never portrays Pa as moaning and groaning, not knowing what to do. Though Pa wasn't born on a plantation like Skip James was in 1902, when it seems like plantations would have been gone but weren't. And Pa didn't participate in the Civil War that was happening all around him, and he was only 25 when it started. Laura's hateful, perfect sister, Mary, born just three months before Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Still, no one in the family was touched by the war, except Uncle George, who ran away when he was 14 to be a drummer boy and was wild when he came home. Though the only wildness we see is his bugle playing and dancing as Pa fiddles songs like Arkansas Traveler and Buffalo Gals and Yankee Doodle. Pa wouldn't have known I'm So Glad or Hard Time Killing Floor Blues because he died in 1902, the year Skip James was born. He and Ma never heard Skip wail and moan those beautiful songs recorded not so far from the Big Woods, though by 1931, the Big Woods were gone. And then Skip James was gone, at least from recording, until the 1960s. Did Skip James read Laura's books? Did he know how she mined her life to come up with riches and fame? Was he waiting in his Mississippi hospital bed to be discovered by folk music enthusiasts, white boys from the North mostly, hungry for something pure and genuine, something authentic and non-commercial they could make money from, or at least try to make money from? They were American, something beautiful and real and born of suffering. This much we know. Skip James was real, and his music was real. He shot people when he was young and bootlegged and sang beautiful, haunting, terrifying songs about cutting a woman in two. Was he waiting to be found by blues miners in 1964? The prospectors wanted to be touched by greatness, affiliated with greatness and what was real, having rejected the confections of Buddy Holly and Elvis and Chuck Berry and the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. Only the year before, 1963, John Hurt had been discovered, extracted from the richest blues mine in the world, Mississippi, where Sun House was also from, though he would be found in Rochester, New York, the same year Skip was found, because everything was still possible. 
It was the year of the Civil Rights Act, which would address some of the race-slash-slavery issues that had been addressed a hundred years before and would have to be addressed again and again forever. One of the beautiful Kennedy dolls had been assassinated, but we were still in Kennedy doll thrall. We would defeat communism in Vietnam. We would fight wars on poverty and right wrongs. We were terribly optimistic, even though a few years earlier, we had been hopeless. We were a little like P.T. Barnum regarding the fat boys he displayed in the 1840s, his infant Hoosier giant and Highland mammoth boys, proclaiming as he did in a letter to another showman, I must have the fat boy. All of America wanted the fat boy in 1844. And in 1964, our collective white pre-hipster Barnum blues miners proclaimed, we must have the blues man. And we found him. We found him. We discovered him over and over. Maybe Skip James and Lightning Hopkins and Sun House were the opposite of Barnum's fat boys, another side of the coin, because Barnum's fat boys only had to be fat. The bigger, the better. Barnum had to have them, and so did we, but they didn't have to do anything. Skip James made beautiful songs. The folklorists had to have him, and so did we, but no one could have his songs as much as he could, whether he was found or not. And when he said, I'm so glad, and I'm so tired, and I don't know what to do, we knew exactly what he meant. And so did Laura Ingalls Wilder, his step-grandmother, when she wrote at the end of her first book, They could not be forgotten, she thought, because now is now. It can never be a long time ago. Skip and Laura and Pa, timeless and immortal. This is now, Laura realizes, in 1860-something, and again in 1930-something, and again every time we read those words. This is now, right now and again forever. George, include a link to the 1931 recording of I'm So Glad in the digital edition. Yes, it's scratchy, but it's going to save somebody's life, probably yours. You've been listening to Miller Kane, a true and exact history, a novel by Samuel Ligon, published in weekly installments by The Inlander, with archived audio at spokanepublicradio.org slash Kane. Our theme music is by Indian Goat. I'm your producer, Chris Massini. Join us next week for the latest episode of Miller Kane. <laughs>